All right, well, three weeks from now, I'm sorry, this week, um, we have a, a youth ski trip. Just wanted to announce that for Brian Mulder. Um, it's like the, the cheapest ski trip you can take. I think it's like $20. Is that right? $25. Um, and so many of you youth, you probably know about that. But the Mulders need to know today if you are coming. And I'm not sure if payment today is required or not. Yvonne, do you know? We don't know. Uh, but $25 gives you lift rental and lift tickets. And it's a wonderful time if you want to want to come. That would be great, but sign up today. It's Wednesday, and that's going to happen, January 2nd, uh, if you can come. Um, also, um, three weeks from now, I'm, uh, I'm not going to be here on uh, Sunday morning because I'm going to be at our, our youth camp, uh, our annual winter camp, enjoying funs, fun and game during the day, sleeplessness at night, helpful retreat, focus on the Word of God. And uh, for the, we've done this now the past, I'm not sure, four, four years, maybe, something like that. Martin Luther King Day weekend always gives you a little bit extra, um, ex, extra day there on Monday. And just to do that, we're joining up with Red Brick Church, uh, Stillman Valley, Mount Morris EV Free Church, Morningstar Church. And uh, again, if you are a youth here and haven't signed up, just encourage you to sign up. It's $50, $50 for like... Three days, three nights, like the best, cheapest youth retreat you can have. And our theme here is Psalms for Life. The entire weekend is going to be focused around the Psalms. We're going to be preaching about the Psalms. We're going to have readings from the Psalms, um, meditations from the songs, Psalms. We're going to sing the Psalms, direct our times of devotions from the Psalms, and uh, some will even have games. Um, some of the games would be loosely based on the Psalms as well. I'm trying to dream up some things about David running from Saul and, and that sort of thing. I think it's going to be a, a fun time. But this theme, Psalms for Life, has a double intention. Uh, first of all, it's, it's to understand, and our, and our aim is to understand that, that to the youth also, that, that Psalms are life-giving. The Psalms give a, a flavor to the soul that's seeking the Lord. It gives a, the Psalms give a, a flavor of what it means to, to give praise at all times. And what it means to lament and how to lament. And how to express anguish through the trials and troubles of life. And, and yet modeling trust throughout all of life. And, and our aim at Winter Camp is to help the youth really understand that the Psalms are life-giving. That, that they can help you and sustain you through life. And convince them that spending time in the Psalms is a good thing for their souls. But second intention of this phrase, not only that it's life-giving, but it's, it's good for your whole life. Um, we want to encourage teams to make uh, a part, the Psalms a part of their, their life for the rest of their life. I mean, nothing could be better for our youth than to have this vision that, that the Psalms can help them in life. That as they, as they just make the Psalms a lifelong quest of walking with David through the ups and downs of life. That they, as they parallel the life of David as a life of faith, they would walk rightly. As they, as they give praise to God all times, they're really thinking through the Psalms. Just kind of see all of those and through the trials and doubts that they have. We'll walk through the Psalms in a similar way. And throughout our, our weekend, we'll have a message every morning and every evening. And uh, those preaching be given the task of turning to a psalm that's been life-giving for them and that they can then get and model for the teens how the psalms can be helpful in, in our lives, really direct us to the Lord. And hopefully then these psalms will become a part of their lives as well. And so as I thought about a psalm that I would speak on and preach on this at uh, winter camp, I thought about Psalm 19. 
which I plan on preaching at winter camp in a few weeks, but I thought this would be a, a run. And so how many of you kids are planning to be there? Colin, all right, Gage. Okay, we got some. Okay, so um, you're going to hear this message twice. I'm going to preach it today, and you're going to hear it again. But I make zero apologies for that because I know how much this psalm has impacted me. And if it takes two sermons to impact you as well, that's, that's very fine with me. And that might be the key to kind of hear that again and just cement this psalm into your life. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 19. If you have a pew Bible, that's page 456, where, where the psalm is, is printed. Really encourage you to be, be looking on the psalm. 19. My message this morning is entitled, A Psalm for Life, based upon Psalms for Life. Here is a, a Psalm for Life. And this psalm has been so impactful to me over the years that I've memorized this psalm, and I simply want to quote it for you. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day-to-day pours out speech, and night-to-night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their, their, utterance goes out, their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man rejoices to run his course. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent of hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's Psalm 19. And God used this psalm to influence my life in great ways. I remember it was the summer of 1988. Okay? How long ago is that? 1988? 30 years ago, Thatcher. Exactly right. In fact, uh, thanks, Tina. 30 years. But this was July of 1988. So that was 30 years and six months ago. I stepped into a church... And the pastor was preaching a series on Psalm 19, maybe just a a couple sermons. And um, though I grew up in church, attended church almost every Sunday of my life, I could not tell you what Psalm 19 was about. I couldn't tell you what much of the Bible was about. But here was Rich Kearns on that day, a pastor speaking who's now with the Lord, who's had a a huge impact on my, had a huge impact on my life. had an even bigger impact on my dad's life and has impacted our whole family. It all started 30 years ago when my father was 50. We met him, and uh, he was preaching through Psalm 19. And, and on that day, 
that I, I came in, he was preaching from verses 7 through 9 on the sufficiency of Scripture. And he was talking about the supreme value of, of knowing the Scripture and what is contained in the Scripture. And this was, this was brand new to me, to be so centered on the Bible. I was 21 years old. I never heard anyone show how the Bible ought to take central place in all of our lives. I'd never seen a people that modeled that either. See, the church I grew up in viewed the Bible as inspiring. The church approached the Scripture like, like we would some, some nice poem, some, some good-feeling song, perhaps, um, some motivating stories. The, the Bible is treated like a, like a help to prop us up or to inspire us or encourage us on, on the way to life. And when I stepped foot in Grace Church of DuPage, it was unlike the church I grew up in. It's unlike any church I had ever visited before where the, the church believed the Scripture was inspired by God. And there's all the difference in the world between being inspiring and being inspired. Inspiring, you, you look to it for your help. It, it, you are using it for your own good. Inspired means that it comes from the mouth of the Lord and he is directing us in the way that we ought to go, the way that we must go. One of the things that Rich Kern spoke on that day um, that I entered 30 years ago, he said this, talked about obedience. Right? This is an inspired word comes with a, a, a divine fiat, a divine command. And he was talking about the obedience that, that God requires of us. He says, obedience is doing what God says when God says it with a willing heart. And the reason for obeying, obeying God's word is because of the character of God's word. It's sufficient for all of life. It should produce an awe and wonder in our life. And we should willingly follow it and obey it. And, and I know what Rich Kearns said that day because this is the Bible I brought to church that day. It was my NIV study Bible. And uh, this is big enough that I got big biceps from my Bible here. And, um, but this is the Bible I, I had in those days. And I still have my sermon notes from that day. This was um, July 17th, 1988. And in, in fact, in, in the Bible here, this, this was the second week I, I went. Actually, the first week was, was right up there. And I knew what he said. Right? You can just read it right up there. Right, Obedience, way at the top, is doing what God says when God says it with a willing heart. July 10th, 1988. Now, I'm not in the habit of writing dates in my Bibles. This is... Probably the only time I ever remember, but that was July 10th when, when he said that. And those are just some notes that I, I took from my notes and I, I put them in my Bible. This was from the, the next Sunday when he's talking about the sufficiency of Scripture. And I, I still remember his illustration there when it says, God's word is David's hot button. I remember the illustration he used about, you know, if you're in sales and you want to go and you want to make a sale, you find out what it is that people like to talk about, and you find that hot button and let them talk and, and really dig out of them. And, and the scripture was David's hot button, is, is really what he said. I still remember that illustration 30 years ago. It's a demonstration of how impactful this psalm has been in my life. And just for you, Yvonne, um, that was written on uh, July 10th. And that evening, John MacArthur came to the tent meeting on July 10th, 1988, preached a sermon that changed my life from, from Matthew chapter 7. So just that, that date, I, I don't know if that was my conversion date at all, but it was a date that was very impactful to me, and I did not even know it. 
the day just kind of came and went, and only looking back can I realize what a, what a special day that was 30 years ago. And my hope for this morning and my hope for winter camp here in three weeks is that Psalm 19 might have a similar impact upon your lives, upon the lives of our, our teens. And it is very appropriate psalm to look at here at the brink of a new year. We think about our priorities. We think about our pursuit of God. We think about our pursuit of the Scriptures. Maybe you're going to have a, a pledge. Hey, I want to read through the Scriptures this year. Maybe I want to listen through the Scriptures this year. Psalm 19 will give you energy and fodder for that. And may Psalm 19 be for all of us a psalm of life for life. Let's pray. Well, Father, I would pray that even right now, God, as we look at this precious psalm, God, that it indeed would stir within us a heart and a passion for you. And in prayer meeting this morning, we talked about the verse and we prayed over the verse that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so, Father, I would pray for all of us that we would see that and that we would love you with our whole hearts, God, through your word, because it's through your word that we get to know you and to, to know you is to love you and to serve you. And so I pray that even this day will be a day of impact for all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 19 is all about communication. It's about revelation. It's about how God makes himself known to his creatures. Um, You know, we communicate in lots of different ways with each other. We communicate face to face and words and expressions and body language. And we communicate by video with with Skype or or FaceTime and, you know, over the electronic medium we we do that. Or or by telephone, we, we communicate by voice with inflection and pause and loudness and volume. We communicate by written word on on email or short notes through text or handwritten notes. And in Psalm 19, we see that God communicates with mankind in two ways. First is through creation. The second is through Scripture. The creation comes in verses 1 through 6, and Scripture comes in 7 through 9. And uh, I want to begin this morning by looking at God's revelation in creation. I'm simply calling it this, sky, Because that's what it speaks about. Look at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. There you see, he's speaking about sky. He's speaking about heavens. But it's really more than that. He's speaking about what the sky and the heavens communicate. They communicate here, verse 1, the glory of God. They communicate the work of God. They communicate the power and beauty and majesty of God. And anyone who dwells on the details of the world that God has created when you look in the sky cannot help but to appreciate the power and immensity of God. In 1977, the United States launched two space probes, the Voyager 1 and the Voyager 2. And these space probes would would go out and, and fly by Jupiter and Saturn. And as they flew by, they got close pictures of them and carried on. And the mission was so successful that they continued on and extended a flyby Uranus and Neptune as well, taking the only pictures we have close up from those planets. And then on February 14th, 1990, 13 years into its journey, Voyager 1 was 4 billion miles from the Earth. And one last time, the engineers at NASA um, directed the space probe to turn around and gaze back at the Earth and to snap a picture. And maybe some of you have seen this picture before. 
looks like a rainbow, but it's not. Those of you know, what, what's that a picture of? The pale blue dot is where we live. It's all of our existence, all of our lives, all of human history is right there on the one pixel. Now Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 have entered interstellar space, which is the, the place where the sun no longer has any effect upon the, um, the outer reaches of the solar system where you can't detect any difference, whatever it's called, the solar wind or whatever. More than 10 billion miles from the earth, traveling 35,000 miles an hour, 10 miles every second. 10 miles, 10 miles, 10 miles, 10. That's fast. And they're still sending back scientific information about their surroundings to Earth. That's why they know that they've reached the, the outer reaches of the interstellar space because they're measuring the effect of the sun out there. They're so far out from our planet, it takes 20 hours for their signal of communication to get back to the Earth. Traveling at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second. That's very, very far out beyond our planet. But thinking about traveling at this rate to the nearest star is 75,000 years it's going to take. Now, they're not headed towards the nearest star, but if they would, 75,000 years to get to that star. And much of what we see in our night sky, as we look out there, is much further away than that. And in most all the universe, we cannot see with our naked eye. In fact, even the, the scientists with the biggest telescopes, the, the Hubble telescope, they can't, they can't see because the galaxies there are blocking everything behind it. Like if there's a light in the sky, you realize that we'll never know what's behind that light because it blocks our view. The sky communicates the glory of God. The sky also communicates the beauty of God. Who hasn't gone in the country, away from the city lights to see the night sky? And who hasn't gone by the sea and see a sunset? See the beauty of the, the colors strewn across the sky and not been left breathless at the sight. It's as if the Lord takes out his paintbrush every night and paints a, paints a unique canvas for us on the canvas which is so big and so vast that no earthly canvas could ever do it justice. And then he erases it, darkens it all, and then every morning and every night he does the same thing. And that's the idea of verses 2 and 3. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor other words whose voice is not heard. The amazing thing about art is that it transcends language. A man from Russia, a, a child from Japan, a woman from America can all look at the same sky and say, wow, in their own language. The, 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 words, the words aren't there. It, it's not as if the, the, the particular, you need no particular language. When, when art is there, we can all appreciate that. Music is the same way. We all can appreciate music that is wordless, symphonies and things like that. And what God is communicating in the sky is the reality about himself, that he's the creator. He's majestic. And marvelous. One man wrote this. Though all the preachers on earth should grow silent. And every human mouth cease from publishing the glory of God. The heavens above will never cease to declare and proclaim his majesty. The creation is the sermon that keeps on 
preaching. And everyone hears that sermon. It says in verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Even though it's without words. And yet, yet still it's going out because it's this wordless creation sermon that says there is a God. And Romans 1 tells us that everybody knows there's a God through the greatness of the creation. That everybody walks in, that everybody sees. And nobody doesn't hear the sound of the sermon of the sky. Now, some refuse to believe it. And do you know what you call those people? If they refuse to see, see the glory of God and then refuse to acknowledge God, you know what you call them? They're fools. Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool says, heart, there is no God. Wise is the one, however, who bows in worship to the almighty God. Midway through verse 4, David then turns his, his focus, rather than the, the scar, stars in the sky, he focuses upon one star, our star, the sun. In them, that is in the heavens, verse 4, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. He's talking here about the sun. The sun which causes those wonderful sunsets, right? Causes all the reflection of the colors off of the clouds, which gives beauty to the rainbows in the sky. And he's talking here about, about the sun, how, how it rises from the end of the heavens, it's circuit to the end of them. It just, it just keeps going round and around and around, and it does that with joy. He compares that, first of all, to a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Now, on Friday evening, the Brandon family was at a, a wedding with uh, one of our cousins, and I say our cousins, but my, my children, there are 22 grandchildren in the family. And so this is maybe the seventh, maybe of the seventh grandchild cousin of my parents who got married. And here's kind of a, a picture of what's, what's taking place. And as I, I think about this phrase in verse 5, comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, there's the picture. Micah had come out of his chamber, and what's he waiting for? He's waiting for his bride. Whitney, my niece, came down the aisle and here they are. This is the picture of them. This is the picture of the sun. This is God's majestic glory. The the world is not a drab place. This is the sun. It rises in the east, sets in the west. It runs its course with joy. I think about that verse. I I, I think about Eric Little. Liddell, the, the famous Scotsman who won the Olympic gold in the 400 in 1924, though he trained for the 100. You know the story. He was a, he was a religious man. Would not qualify, would not run his qualifications on a Sunday, and so forfeited the, the 100. So he ran the 400 and won his gold. He was later a, a missionary to China. And he said, as it says there, right, I believe God has made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And that's the sun. Verse 5. Like a strong man, he runs its course with joy. Like a strong man, the sun runs its course around the earth with joy. It's the picture that, that David gives. Relentlessly rising in the east and setting in the west. Every day, never complaining, putting forth its majestic light for all to see as a testimony to the glory and majesty of God. It's filled with joy and beauty. And there's no creature hidden from the glories of creation. 
This is general revelation. And now he turns to specific revelation from the sky to the Scripture. Which is my second point. This is verses 7 through 9. We read, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Each of these verses follow the same formula. You have a title for God's Word. And then you have a characteristic for God's Word. And then you have a benefit of God's Word. And we can spend much time dissecting these three verses, just looking at the titles alone. And looking at the characteristics of God's Word. And also looking at the benefits of God's Word. In fact, Psalm 119 is the divine commentary on these three verses. 176 verses giving the the same idea over and over and over and over again. That God's Word is trusted and true and worthy of our attention. Here in Psalm 19, we only have six statements For the sake of time, I just simply want to summarize these formulas with you and just expand just briefly what he's talking about. The first formula points us to the the law of the Lord, which is perfect, which has its benefit of reviving the soul. The law of the Lord is the instruction, the doctrine that God has given to us. It points to the the perfection of the law, the, the power of the law. And this law revives our soul. It gives us life. My sermon title? A psalm for life. It revives the soul. God's law does. This is like medicine to our souls. To revive us and make us alive. You feel dull of soul? Go to the Bible. Go to the law of God. That glorious law as Isaiah called it. The second formula speaks of the testimony of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The testimony is a witness. That's God's personal witness. It can be trusted above all witnesses. Witnesses are put on the stand who are notorious liars. You can't even trust them. But God, you can trust His Word that it is sure. In fact, it is so sure that it can take a, a simple person and make him eminently wise. Even the one who is who's maybe deceived about life and easily duped, right? Gullible. The one who trusts on God's sure Word can make such a one wise. The third formula points us to the precepts of the Lord. And the precepts of the Lord are right. And they cause a rejoicing in our heart. Precepts are the declarations of what God has, has made and done. These are the declarations, as it says, are right. That is, they are straight. They are upright. There's, there's no crooked way in them or devious or deceitful ways in any of God's Word. And they give us reason to rejoice in this life because we have the true and pure right and straight path. The next formula speaks of the commandment of the Lord, which is pure, and it enlightens our eyes. It it helps us to see the the commandment of the Lord. Those are the the statutes that that God has given us to live by. This is what He tells us to do, and they are, as we see here, even they are pure statutes. They never lead us into sin. They never lead us into unrighteousness. Rather, they enlighten our eyes so that we might see the right path. Psalm 119.97 Thy word is a light to my path. That we can go and walk in the right ways. The fifth one 
talks about the fear of the Lord. Now, this really isn't a synonym for God's word, but in the context, it becomes a synonym of God's word. It, it's, it's everything that God's word is. It's about the fear of the Lord, which is clean, endures forever. It's really what, what God's word should produce in our lives, a healthy awe and wonder at his glory. It creates a, a clean attitude, right? When we fear the Lord, the holy, holy, holy God Almighty, there is a, as a cleanness to this and a purity because we will fear Him. We will walk in the right ways. And that eternity will endure. And that, that attitude will endure for eternity in God's presence. Forever. Clean. The fear of the Lord is. And finally, the sixth formula addresses the rules that God has given us. And these are true and altogether righteous. Uh, other translations, the rules gives the judgments. That is, the verdicts that come down are true. There's no bribery here, no, no falseness to them. They are right and appropriate for us for all of life. And there's nothing wrong or inappropriate in them. They are altogether righteous. Well, let me just read for you an, an amplified translation that I, that I made just thinking about pulling out these words. And so as I read through them, you'll see me just kind of slowly working down there, just expanding on it. The doctrinal instruction of the Lord is complete, bringing the essence of our being to where it belongs. The personal witness of God is absolutely faithful and trustworthy and can give stability and life to the undiscerning who are especially susceptible to deception. The declarations of God are upright in strength. They preserve a joyous consciousness of being on the right path towards the right goal. The rule and guide that God has given to us is as pure as the light of the sun and gives us understanding not only to the eyes, but also to one's whole condition. The awesomeness of God is like clear glass and will maintain its stand throughout eternity. The decisions and verdicts of the Lord are faithful and true and no reproach uh, or injustice or wrong clings to them in any way whatsoever. There is God's Word. There is the Scripture that is true of every word of the Bible. He's basically lifting it up and boasting at how good the Bible is. Now, in his day, of course, he didn't have all the Bible, but by extension, this applies to the whole of Scripture. Lifting it up. And then in verse 10, he, he gives us the right response to these things. And, and he, he directs us to our desires. If God's Word is so great, how should we respond? More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. <clears throat> Get it in your hearts. Scripture is worth more than financial gain. Got a little picture here about a scale. Got a Bible and money. And if you weigh out, you say, hmm, what's, what's more important? Just the, the truth of God's Word or, or money? What, what's more important? God's Word is more valuable and more precious to have. In the days of David, you had gold. And you had fine gold. The gold was the sort of impure metal that comes out of the ground, but the fine gold was the metal that had been refined by fire. The pure gold, which made it much, much more valuable. And God's Word is even worth more than the much fine gold. Much of the gold, it's worth there. And David says that Scripture is to be more desirable than anything that money can buy. 
In words of Proverbs 23, 23, we ought to buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. And the picture there is, is this. We ought to use our financial means to gain something which is far better than any finances can buy. It's a wise investment to invest your money in spiritual resources, books, CDs, podcasts, videos. Purchase yourself maybe a nice Bible. But the greatest resource you have, really, in our day and age, I mean, spiritual resources are cheap. They're free on the Internet. It costs Internet access. Right? Books are a bunch of them in our library. We don't have problem. Anything's free today. Most, but what's valuable? Our time is valuable. So the time that we take. And Psalm 19 says, give time to the Word of God. Let its truth saturate your life. Follow the Lord in obedience to it. You know, people search far and wide for treasure. They'll give their lives up to sit in a corporate office in order to enlarge their bank account. And all the while, something more valuable is totally within their grasp and they miss it. They don't even grab it. This truth, which is more valuable than gold, is available to those who don't have any gold. It costs a few dollars and they neglect it. May that never be true of Rock Valley Bible Church. But David uses the illustration also our desires, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So I think about honey and I think about drippings of honeycomb. One imagery comes to mind. It's that of Pooh Bear. <laughs> Loving his honey. Doing anything he can do to get his honey. And so get it in your hearts. Scripture is better than physical pleasure. Sometimes Pooh Bear is, is so into it that it gets him in trouble. Sometimes he gets stuck in the tree and Christopher Robin and Rabbit need to come and pull him out of the tree because he has gone in there and he's eaten and he's grown fat. Can't get him out. But that's how it is. We have to pursue God's word. Pursue it like, like Pooh Bear does his honey. Like we do our, our sweets. And, and, and Pooh Bear, just look, look at that there. What if, what if it was the Bible? It was so wrapped around our face that here, here it is. We're like, whoa, I got so much Bible. I got so, you're, you're seeing everything through the biblical lens. That would be profitable. That would be helpful. 20 years ago, November 1997, when my kids were two and three years old, and I only know this because I wrote it down at, at some point, they're very small, and we gave them honey for the first time. SR was two years old and Krissa was three years old at the time. We gave them honey for the first time. We spread on some cornbread. So maybe we had some chili. I'm not sure exactly what we had. I can't even remember this, but I did write it down. And um, I wrote down they loved it and they couldn't get enough of it. Here's here's what I wrote down. The next day they refused to eat anything. Each of them insisted we have cornbread and honey again for dinner that night. Because they loved their honey so much. We ought to pursue God's word in the same way. We ought, we ought to be like Edmund who, who braved the storm to get to the castle of the white witch so he could have some more of that Turkish delight. Whatever it takes just to get there, to give me the, the sweetness of that. We ought to say with Job, I've treasured the words of God's mouth more than my necessary food. But God's word is more important than that. It's more important than the, the food to sustain me. Erasmus 
a liberal church father who battled with Luther. He was on the wrong side of Luther. He said, he, he loves studies so much. He said, if I have money and have an option to buy books or food, I always buy books, is what he said. And so likewise, we ought to just pursue the passion of God's word and the scripture above our food. And truth be known, these verses here are what drove me to go to seminary. When I exposed the value of the Bible, when I experienced the sweetness of the Word of God, I could do nothing but give my time to its study. So picture me, I'm 21 years old, grown up in church my whole life, never been around a lot of Bible. In fact, many of you kids, you know the Bible far more better than I did when I was 21. Even some of you littlest guys. Thatcher, even you probably. Probably know the Bible better than I did when I was 21 years old. And then I exposed this church. And all of a sudden, and I never knew anybody who knew the Bible better than I did. There was one gal who grew up in Wheaton. She was around a Bible home that when I went to college, she knew the Bible better than me. But I, I knew it better than others. And it just, I, I kind of read it a little bit, but I didn't know. But all of a sudden, I'm around this church with a, with a bunch of men who took the Bible, really believed that this is more precious than gold, even much fine gold. And they found it to be sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And they practiced it and they lived it and it just oozed out of them. And I said, I, this, I've never seen anything like this. And I said, I've got to go study the Bible. I went into seminary not looking to be a pastor. In fact, that caused me some problems of getting into seminary. Because where I went, they have a singular purpose, a master's seminary. We train men of God to preach the word of God. And I came in on my application said, I don't think I want to be a pastor. I just want to study the Bible. And uh, my application didn't come back. I wasn't accepted right away. I talked to someone at church who had some means and some influence. He said, have you received your acceptance? Yeah, I said, no. He said, tell you what, let, let me give you a call. And my acceptance came on Wednesday. <laughs> so that's how I got in. I think someone helped me get in, and I'm so thankful for that. But that's these verses here and just the, the value of Scripture drove me to that. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. Truth be known, these words really what drove me to be a pastor. I saw and experienced the profitability of God's Word. I gave up my computer career and took a pay cut to do a job far harder, far more difficult than my computer job was. I, I like to say computers are easy. You just turn them off and turn them on. Then not so with people. People are a little bit more difficult. But what has afforded me, has afforded me years of being in the Bible to know the Scriptures, to love the Scriptures and be paid for it. That's why I'm a, a pastor. It's been life-giving to me. Will Psalm 19 direct you to be life-giving to you this next year? You're going to pursue God's Word this year? I mean, this is appropriate New Year's Eve sermon. That's why I thought about when preaching it today. There's great time to do it. We just think about many of you will say, hey, I'm going to read the Bible this year. Well, Psalm 19 gives you every reason to read the Bible. If you want to, maybe listen through the Bible. I've talked before about this podcast, Daily Audio Bible, Brian Harden. I've listened to every episode this year. It's been very helpful just listening through the whole Bible. Um, Avon has close as well. Um, we listen together. Sometimes we're in the car. Do you listen to Daily Order Bible yet? Sometimes we've listened. Just kind of just 15 minutes every day. Just kind of kind of get in there. It's super easy. If you're finding reading difficult, but you might just say, 
you know, whether, whether it's that or, or whether it's some kind of different study passionately or some, some Christian book. What, what are you going to do? Is it, are you going to pursue your Bible? Are you going to pursue the Word of God? Are you going to find it true that, that God's Word is perfect, that it revives the soul, that God's testimony is sure, that you can stand on it and it's going to make you wise, and the precepts of the Lord are right, that they give joy to your heart? That the commandment of the Lord, it's pure, it leads you into the right way, and that the fear of the Lord is clean, and that God's rules are righteous altogether, and that these things are be desired more than gold, more than honey. Is that going to be your heart's desire? It's not just some list of rules that comes from within inside of you saying, this is the best, this is what is good for me. I mean, that drive you on over your Bible sit unused and unkept. You know, there was a time that a Bible kept a diary. Here's what the Bible wrote in its diary. January 15th. Been resting for a week. A few nights after the first of the year, my owner has opened me, but no more. Another New Year's resolution gone wrong. February 3rd, owner picked me up and rushed off to Sunday school. February 23rd, cleaning day, dusted and put back in my place. April 2nd, busy day. Owner had to lead a home group. So quickly looked up a lot of references, had an awful time finding the one in the book of Jude because he was looking at the minor prophets for it. May 5th, in grandma's lap all afternoon, she was here to visit. She let a tear drop on Revelation 21, 1 through 5. I'm not used to that, but I really enjoyed it. May 9th, grandma let a tear fall on John 14, 1 through 3. May 10th, grandma's gone. I'm back in my old place. May 20th, baby born, they wrote his name on one of my pages. June 3rd, had a couple of four-leaf clovers stuck in me today. I wonder why they did that. June 25th, they placed a large envelope in me today. Said it was the deed to the new house. They wanted to place them where they would never be disturbed. July 1st, one of my children found me, wanted to know what that black book was. July 4th, packed in a suitcase, off for a holiday. July 20th, still in a suitcase, unmolested, almost everything else taken out. July 25th, home again, quite a journey, though I didn't see why I went. August 1st, very hot, have the Sunday paper, two magazines, three novels, and some old clothes lying on me, don't see why they don't take them off. August 16th, cleaned again, put in a prominent place, the minister's coming to dinner. August 20th, owner wrote grandma's death in my family record. He left his extra pair of glasses between my pages. December 31st, owner just found his glasses. Wonder if he will make any resolutions about me for the new year. Now, of course, that's tongue in jest and maybe hyperbole, but what would your Bible say when it comes to the new year? How would it read? Is there enough dust on there that says, read me? No, the psalm doesn't end there. It ends with uh, a view of sin. We've seen the sky and God proclaiming himself, the reality, the glory, and general revelation to everybody. We've seen the scripture and the specific special revelation to us in his word where he gives us specific um, revelation even then, this gets down to revelation about Jesus. Then, if you take the scripture and you understand his gospel, 
Because we don't understand the gospel by the sky, but we understand the gospel through his word that Christ came and died for our sins. But it ends here with sin in view, which really leads us to Jesus. I love the Isaac Watts hymn that we sang. It just speaks about just the sin and, and how the, the sin, just as the sun goes from shore to shore and from sky to sky, so also is sin and so also for the solution of sin. It's Christ goes from, every, from shore to shore. And these words are great lead into the Lord's Supper, which we'll be celebrating here in a, in a few moments as they cause us to, to think about and reflect upon, upon our sin. Let me read verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there's great reward. Here's the warning. The Scriptures warn us. They tell us of truths. They tell us of the things to avoid and the the things to go after. They tell us of the things to come and the consequences for not believing in Christ Really, it's a great lead into the Lord's Supper that because Paul issued a warning to those who would celebrate the Lord's Supper, he said, before doing so, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and of the cup. Because if you discern yourself wrongly, you're guilty of the body and blood of, of Christ. And really, so what I want to do is really take these, these verses here and just, just speak about, think about the Lord's Supper and and sin and righteousness. You know, from time to time, I'm asked to sign someone's Bible. Maybe a Bible's given to a child, and and parents come up to me and just say, "Here, would you sign the Bible for my for my son or my daughter?" And whenever I have that chance, I write this little phrase in the Bible, and then I sign it, my name, and date it, and whatever I say to so and so. I said, I say something like this. This book will keep you from sin, and sin will keep you from this book. Pastor Steve, whatever, December 30th, 2018. And that's uh, the reality here, what the Bible does in our life. The Bible that's falling apart belongs usually to a life that's not. Sin warns us of sin, and sin promises a reward. Moreover, by them, that is the Scriptures, your servant is warned. And here it is, in keeping them, there's great reward. In obeying the Scriptures, there is a reward that sits on the other side. Do you believe that? Do you believe there's a reward? Do you look forward to the day when God, the Lord says to you, Matthew 25, 20, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. The one who was faithful with a little received a little. The one who was faithful with a lot received a lot. And what God gives, He will reward. This is something we can look forward to. And, and I say, having your mind on that day helps you to live this day in light of that day. And the Lord's Supper is an opportunity to look forward to that day. Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. So just look at the last three verses. David asks one question. And then he prays. His question is is simple enough. He says, who can discern his errors? So he goes from thinking about God and his glory. And he goes to thinking about scripture and how it penetrates his heart and his life. And then he says, well, what about me? Where do I stand? And the first thing he goes to is his errors his sins. Who can discern his errors? 
And in some regards, he says, we're all blind. Who, who, who can do that? There's a rhetorical question. Who, who really knows all their errors? And then he prays this, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Those are the things that are, are faulty within me, that the sins I commit that I don't even know of. And truth be told, many times we sin like that. Little attitudes, little words, little thoughts that maybe we, we've thought, oh, that's okay. But when you measure up against, we looked at it prayer meeting this morning, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's the greatest commandment. You know what the greatest sin is? Is to fail in the greatest commandment. To not love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And there's many ways that we do that that we don't even realize are not sin. And we realize that they are sin, but we don't even realize that. So he just tries to cleanse everything. And, and you notice his, his theology here isn't that he has to confess every single sin. He just says, I got these hidden faults. I don't know of them. And God, please declare me innocent of them. But there are some sins he knows full well about. These are the sins that he commits in full knowledge. These are perhaps the repetitive sins, the sins that weigh him down. And he says, he pleads to the Lord, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. It's a little bit like what um, Jesus taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation. He, he, he just says here, right, there's, there's sins that I have that are presumptuous, which are, are calculated, which are measured, which are ready to be committed. And he says, God, keep me back. God, hold me from that. Prevent me from there. And, and I just say, you know, we, we all are sinners, right? We all sin in, in ways that we don't know of and in ways we do know of. And, and here's a proper perspective here, the sins that we, we do know of. Do, do you just pray to the Lord that says, God, help me. Keep me away from these things because I hate them. It's just even something to check at. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Maybe, maybe there are sins that you, are presumptuous sins that you are walking in fully without any sort of, God help me, I, I hate this, God, turn me away from that. Your attitude is just, I want to keep sinning in that way. Well, then don't celebrate the Lord's Supper because you've not discerned the body rightly. You're not trusting the Lord with these things. But if, but if you see your sin and you say, Christ, I need your help to conquer these sins. The promise is, right, no temptation has overtaken you, but such is a common demand. And God is faithful and, and he will give you the way of escape. If you just pray and trust and seek the way of escape, like we looked at last week, the, the snake upon the, upon the pole, right? There's the way of escape. He'll provide you a way of escape. Are you praying for that way? Are you walking in presumptuous sins? Then David says this, If you keep me back, and may they not have dominion over me, may, may these sins not lord over me, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And that's his aim. That'll be our aim, is to walk in a blameless, righteous way. But we need the grace of Christ. In fact, that's what the Lord's Supper is about. It's not about being perfect in order to take the Lord's Supper. It's about an acknowledgement that I am not perfect, but I need Christ. Jesus told us to eat the bread and drink the cup, and so we do that, reflecting upon our own need. An examination nonetheless. And then comes these, these great words in verse 14 about a heart and a mind and words 
that please the Lord. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What, what a great verse even to govern your year. If you, every day you'd pray this prayer. Let the words of my mouth, the words I say, and the meditation of my heart, the things I think about, be acceptable in your sight. Some translations even say there, be pleasing in your sight. That we always live to be pleasing to the Lord. And then in calling him, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, the one upon whom I stand and the one who redeems me from my sin, which, of course, is the, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads and just even prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And, and as you do, I just simply want to read a, a hymn that we'll sing in a few moments that carries on these same themes of the glory of God in creation and then the, the grace of God in the Scripture. You've heard it before. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. There it is, the creation, the sky. And then comes the scripture. And when I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And that's the reality of of Christ and what the scriptures all speak of and point to. The prophets foretold of the, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They predicted this suffering Savior who would die in our place for our transgressions. That's what the Scriptures speak about. And even this hymn then addresses the reward when our sin is finally gone. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart. And then I shall bow with humble adoration and then proclaim, my God, how great thou art. This is what the Lord's Supper is, is about. It's about seeing the glory of God. It's about seeing our sin. It's about seeing our Savior. It's about acknowledging Him. And so if you're trusting in Christ, if He is indeed your Savior, then celebrate the Supper with us. But if you don't know Christ, or even if you're just walking in blatant presumptuous sin without any desire a prayer to God that He would keep you back from those things. Perhaps best to just, just pass this time. Also, as you think about this new year, I just encourage you to pray to Christ for strength, to walk in His ways, that the Psalms indeed would be life-giving to you. And Father, I do thank You for Psalm 19 and for the, the life that it has me and the direction that it has placed my life upon. I would pray that others would follow suit in, in, in their own ways. God, of what it means to meditate on your Scripture, to memorize your Scripture, to think of your Scripture, to share your Scripture, to speak of it. God, because it is life-giving. And I pray as we celebrate the, the Lord's Supper here, just according to your word, that it would be life-giving to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.